My name is Dan Brown, and I'm here with the inaugural episode of Lenses on User Experience, continuation of my uh, interview series, uh, A Lens a Day. And it is my great pleasure uh, to talk today to the uh, courageous Alba Vijamil. Alba, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I want to uh, dive right into it. We, we have a lot to talk about. I know you've been doing a lot of work on looking at uh, privilege and power and injustice in the field of user experience. It's an enormous thing to take on. Uh, and I'm, uh, it's, it's very educational for me to kind of uh, watch that work uh, unhap- uh, unfold and happen. Um, but you're also a UX researcher. So maybe we just start there. Can you tell me a little bit about how, uh, in your research practice, you draw other team members, maybe who are not researchers, into that research process? What does it look like when you um, bring other people in to experience the research for themselves or uh, participate in the analysis? Yeah, so I think I'll provide a little bit of context before I dive into that. So I work uh, mainly in the social impact space. So most of my clients are uh, community organizations or social enterprises. And so they're organizations meant to create social change. And one of the joys, I think, of working with that type of client is that they've already bought into this idea of being human-centered or empathetic or doing no harm. But what ends up happening, though, is that it also means it's a lot harder to root out kind of the harmful assumptions and practices that they're engaged in uh, because they see themselves as do-gooders. So something that I've been thinking a lot about this past year is the relationship between research and ignorance. And we often talk about research being this source of insight and knowledge, but it can also be a strategic source of ignorance. Uh, And so back in January, I read this fantastic article uh, written by a sociologist named Jennifer Mueller, and it completely changed the way that I approached stakeholder engagement. Because one of the things that Mueller argues is that ignorance as a concept is not the absence of knowledge. It's its own form of non-knowledge. So it's something that's normalized. It's something that is productive. So that means that people can use ignorance to achieve some goal. And how I kind of tie that back into my stakeholder engagement work is that I try to think about when I'm working with one of these community organizations is how are they using strategic ignorance? In other words, how are they using their desire to do certain types of projects in order to deny their liability? as a client and their liability to their, you know, their community clients, their participants, and so on. Uh, And so what that made me think as a researcher is how can I find checkpoints within the research process that helps me challenge their strategic ignorance? How can I give them tools to you know, kind of almost develop their muscle for challenging their own strategic ignorance. 
strategic ignorance. So is that when I, when you say strategic, strategic ignorance, what I'm thinking is, uh, I'm specifically, <clears throat> I'm choosing, uh, to avoid engaging in certain topics and areas because they will at, at best make me uncomfortable and at worst kind of undermine everything that I am, that I think I'm trying to accomplish. Exactly. So I can give you an example of one of the projects um, that I worked on when I actually first transitioned into user research from academic research. So I was working with a school that was trying to kind of figure out why its uh, Latinx parents showed, quote unquote, less engagement than um, other parents within the school. And by engagement, they meant things like Latinx parents were less likely to volunteer in the classroom or attend school uh, field trips. Uh, so that type of thing. And when I was uh, hired, I was brought in specifically to interview these Latinx parents, and I was not supposed to interview any of the other parent groups in that school. And so when I was talking with stakeholders, I was trying to think about like, well, why is it that you only want to focus on this one group of people? Yes, the goal is to kind of change their metrics of engagement as parents, but why are you trying to block me off from these other users? And then I kind of went rogue and I decided to interview uh, some of the other uh, parents in the school. And so this school was mainly uh, like, I would say like maybe around like 40% Latinx and like 60% black. And so I decided to interview some of the black parents and they as a group in terms of metrics were super engaged in the classroom, right? They were attending all the events, they were going to all those student teacher parent conferences. But when I interviewed them and asked them, you know, what does it mean to be an engaged parent? Like, why do you try to be engaged? A lot of them told me that the reason why they are constantly in the presence of their children while they're at school is because they are afraid that their children are being discriminated against by teachers, by administrators, by staff. And so for them, participating in the classroom, engaging in the classroom was a way for them to monitor and make sure that their children were not being discriminated against. So they were being engaged in the classroom, right, which is that metric that the school wanted to hit. But the reason why they were is because they were essentially trying to counteract the racism of the school as an organization. And I realized then when I was interviewing these black parents that this was a form of strategic ignorance, right? right? The school was purposefully trying to deny their liability in terms of how they were mistreating certain groups of children by framing this research project solely around the Latinx parents, not the school as a whole and not the school itself, right? We're only trying to study parents to get them to do better rather than get the school to do better. I can't imagine that the school was like excited to hear these results. Did you, oh, no. 
Um, I mean, I'm excited to hear about how the school reacted, but I'm, I'm, is this something you were able to share with them? And how did you, how did you kind of like help them understand that there was a bigger picture here? I think one of the key things was that I was able to take parents, uh, parent liaisons, teachers, as well as other staff into the field with me. One of the components of the project that was already kind of built in was that um, I had to essentially uh, teach these school members how to do this research, because the idea would be like, I would come in for this short term project, but then after I left, there would be some infrastructure in place for how uh, staff could do this type of research themselves. So they were already kind of engaged in how to design, you know, survey materials. But I was like, no, 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 like we should also uh, kind of work on your interviewing skills and your observation skills. And what ended up happening is that the teacher were able to see from their interviews with Black parents kind of what their colleagues were doing. Uh, in the classroom and outside of the classroom. And that was a way for me to kind of frame these results because it was coming from the colleagues that were being critiqued. So I was not the one who necessarily brought up the results of this research. I essentially relied on my teacher co-researchers to present the results to their staff. And I was very, I think, strategic about making sure that it was people um, who were, you know, tenured, that they had good respect within <laughs> the community. So, I mean, even if this is a community organization, right, it's a school, it's kind of similar to how you would try to attempt to strategize this in a larger private sector organization, right? Like you find who has power, who has a voice, who is listened to, who is trusted, right. and have them present the results on your behalf. Right. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, it's great, just um, foundational advice, maybe even in a um, less controversial setting, um, just the idea of drawing people into the process from the outset and acting less as a um, expert or like a sole, the only person who can do this research and more kind of helping others uh, do the research for themselves empowers them to then um, uh, see the results of the research and maybe make use of it and then also translate it. I think we hear from a lot of UX researchers, part of the thing that makes them so exhausted is they do all this research and then their results sit on a shelf. And that is important. This is not to blame them, but this is in part, part of the, part of the lesson that we're hearing here is that if I drop others into that research to actually do the research, the knowledge becomes embedded in them and they become uh, ambassadors for the results as well. And what I think was also really interesting about this school that I hadn't realized when I kind of stumbled into this project was that some of the same dynamics that were happening between the teachers and the parents and the teachers and the kids were also happening between the teachers themselves. Uh, because there was also a lot of discrimination and kind of like ethnic tension within the school. And so it was actually really interesting to, uh, I think what made the teachers who were essentially acting as my advocates and kind of the voices of the user was that 
they also recognized that this was a larger problem than just what was happening with the students, that they actually had to take a step back and really think about what was the culture of the school and how was that affecting the whole entire organization. And so one of the outcomes of this project was also that teachers started advocating for like workshops and trainings like around discrimination, but not related to, to the students right. or the parents, but for themselves. Because uh, they went through this kind of reflexivity process of seeing how this small problem that was happening with the users was actually manifesting within the organization itself. I mean, isn't that part of the strategic ignorance, right? This idea that if there is a problem, it's <clears throat> concentrated in one aspect of our community, when really anything that's in one aspect of our community, out of necessity, right, out of by the definition of our community is, is going to be elsewhere uh, as well. And but strategically ignorant, I can choose to uh, ignore those other those other problems. So um, that was that was really a good story, and I feel like we could just keep talking about that. Um, um, but I'm going to, uh, switch to sort of, I think the the impetus of these conversations, which is what I really want to start doing is taking a new lens, uh, to our practices, right. Um, and hear about the different ways that folks such as yourself, um, uh, who are deeply entrenched in this work, uh, have started re-examining, uh, the, the practice, is there one aspect of user research or maybe even the design process as a whole or user experience as a practice that you think needs to be examined most closely? I mean, I've literally just done the strategic ignorance thing where I've said, well, clearly there's a big problem, but let's just pick one of them. But for the sake of argument, is there one, one place that you think might be a good starting point for us to kind of look at this area or aspect of research or user experience in a new way? Yes. So, so many. How much more time do we have for this call, right? Um, I think, though, the one thing that I really try to emphasize when I work with clients is uh, I want them to leave the experience understanding that research, our frameworks, our processes, our tools reflect social norms and our culture. Um, and that means that even when we have good intentions as researchers, we can cause harm because our social norms and culture are harmful. Um, in my own work, I tend to focus a lot on the racist elements of user research. How do we recruit participants? How do we frame research problems? But one of the things that I kind of recently realized in reading a lot of kind of like disability justice work is that there's also kind of like a more, how would I say this, like, there's something even more fundamental beyond just uh, something makes something racist, but it's this mental model, I think, that uh, researchers and designers have of users. And that's what I call like the um, deficiency model of human behavior. And when researchers approach certain groups of people, they 
tend to focus on pain points. And that kind of excessive focus on pain points, and some people can even call it like the fetishization of pain points, uh, is that it inherently ignores the diversity of experience, the joy within experience, and all the skills that users bring. Um, so let me make that a little bit less abstract. So I think like a lot of times in uh, accessibility research, uh, right? So like we are purposely recruiting disabled users in order to test the accessibility of our products. Researchers dive right into the pain points, right? They're like, what frustrates you about using this product with a screen reader? Or what um, gives you issues? Like what are some barriers, right? And so they use these very loaded terms, right? These are all negative terms, pain points, barriers, frustrations. And what it does is that it completely ignores the way, the, the way that disability is just one aspect of that person's life, right? Why aren't we, like we do with other types of users, asking about that person's daily life? right? And how disability fits into that daily life rather than dominates it by focusing on those pain points and those frustrations. And the consequence of doing that is that we tend to also minimize um, what is often called like in the disability justice literature, like CRIP skills, uh, which is the knowledge that disabled people bring to the challenges that they face in their life. So a classic example of this is when uh, designers tend to equate temporary acquired and congenital disabilities as similar, right? We always have that example of, oh, you should design for uh, accessibility because we all have these moments where things are inaccessible, right? I'm driving a car and I suddenly can't see you know, my screen because of the glare. Oh, that's like a temporary disability in a way, right? So we're equating those things. But the thing is though, if I'm someone who has lived all my life with a particular disability, I have developed skill sets and awareness of how to navigate the completely inaccessible world that I live in. That's a skill that we are minimizing as researchers by equating these different categories of disability as one. And so I always try to push researchers to think about like, how are you mimicking the ableism in society by essentially saying that someone who has a disability only has pain points and frustrations and doesn't bring knowledge, expertise, and joy, you know, to their experience with products. I loved every second of that um, as uh, I, I do not have a sense of smell and I was born without a sense of smell. And when people find out that about me, their immediate reaction is, so you can't taste either. And it sort of immediately frames this as uh, in the negative, right? What are my pain points? Right, My pain points are I can't taste either. But what they don't care really that much about is my coping strategies. Like what 
what have I had to learn over the years to deal with the fact that I have one fewer sense than many other people uh, around me. So what you just said really, really spoke to me because there is kind of a knowledge that comes with um, that we all have if living in the world in our own bodies, right? And whatever those, whatever those bodies uh, might, might be. So is there a point in your career where you sort of, where the light bulb went off, where you were like, oh my gosh, we're doing this wrong, or we could be doing this better, or there is some underlying fundamental strategic ignorance within user experience that we need to deal with. What, at what point in your career did you sense that there was this need, uh, or was it a gradual process for you? I, mean, I think it was a gradual process, but you know, as a woman of color and of uh, someone whose you know ethnic origins is like I'm Puerto Rican, right? So that is still one of the last remaining colonies in the world uh, because of the United States. And there is a history of the United States using Puerto Rico as the testing ground for a lot of research projects, right? Um, if anyone uses birth control pills, that was originally tested on Puerto Rican and Mexican women uh, because the creator of that pill was a eugenicist, right? So they wanted to test the pill on people who weren't white or people who were vulnerable. And so that affected people that I know, not necessarily people in my family, but we know of people who, because the pill was tested on the island during this time period, that their families were um, infertile, right? It caused infertility or it caused all of these other uh, physical harms and emotional harms and trauma within those communities. And so I've always had that kind of history in the back of my mind as someone who is Puerto Rican and knows about that history. So I've always had this very uh, tense relationship with the concept of research. And as someone who then went into research, my motivation was always, how can I use research to undo the design of like policy and products that have caused so much harm within my community? But I think uh, one moment that really struck me was actually one of my first ethnographic projects when I was in school. And I was working with a nonprofit that helped uh, Afro-Latinx youth graduate high school. And so here I was this like pale, middle-class Latina who was working with you know, these youth who were mainly Black, um, had gone through the juvenile system, and had just been dealt really tough cards their whole entire lives just because they were born Black and poor. And I had this moment where I remember like I was like interviewing this one uh, participant, and it was just this really complex, just like back and forth. Like she was very suspicious of me as she should have been. And it came up in conversation that 
not only was I Puerto Rican, but like my mom came from the same neighborhood as her mom. And there was this in Puerto Rico. And so my mom, she's Afro Latina and she grew up in kind of like a, what would have been considered like a rough neighborhood back in the seventies when she was still living in Puerto Rico. And my participant was immediately like, wow, like your hood, you're like, oh shoot. Like you, are you like, actually like you're black, you're this, you're that. Um, and suddenly I developed a rapport with her and she started trusting me when she hadn't for the first 30 minutes of this interview. And she then started just like sharing a lot of things with me that I was like, should you be sharing this with me? You didn't trust me beforehand until you saw that we had a similar kind of like ethnic background or like class background. And there was, it was just like this moment where I was like, I, as a researcher, have so much power in this position. And we often think about how like, oh, yeah, like, you know, we should develop rapport and like researchers who come from the same background as their participants should be doing this research so they can develop this rapport. But it's like, but I still am in a position of power as a researcher. And if anything, I'm even in a, a more potentially dangerous position of power now because now she trusts me for absolutely no reason. And she wouldn't have done that necessarily with like a white researcher. And so there's just like that complex moment of like, like as a researcher, we really need to think about this a little bit deeper. We need to really challenge this assumption of rapport is good. This assumption that, you know, uh, similar ethnic backgrounds between researcher and participant automatically makes a project more ethical or safer it really kind of just like made me think like, no, 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 no. There are so many apparent goods that we have in user research that we don't question. And we really need to slow down and start doing that questioning. Was there, as a result of that experience, uh, and thank you for sharing it because it's a really powerful story. Was As a result of that experience, did you make any sort of very tactical or specific changes to your process after that? Yes. I mean, one of the big ones would be how I treat consent. Uh, beforehand, I always was like, oh, yeah, here's a consent form, you know, sign it, do this. But now I really try to integrate consent, like into every single moment of the research process. I always give what I call like escape hatches every time that I, you know, interact with a participant just to remind them like, you do not have to say anything here. You can leave at any point. I will not be mad. You will not be punished. Like just like, you know, affirming all of those, but then also working with communities to actually do workshops, essentially teaching folks how to refuse any type of research project or any type of intervention that a nonprofit, a university or whatever is trying to sell them, right? Understanding your rights as a participant, like if you are being over-researched or overburdened or being exploited by this research project, 
what are your rights as a participant and what should be the expectations you hold for people who come to you with these projects? Like just because someone works at a fancy university or a fancy company doesn't mean you can't tell them no. And a lot of folks have never been explicitly told that, that they can say no um, and that they should say no. And that if, you know, people are not paying them or if people are not, these researchers aren't paying them, if they aren't, you know, doing their research in a way that feels safe, that you can refuse that. Because consent is not, we focus a lot on getting people to say yes, but really it should be about encouraging people to say no until we fulfill their expectations. Um, you've triggered like a million thoughts. Um, it feels like what I like about what you're saying is, uh, although we try and gloss over that consent part, that is the moment in which we tell them you are the one in power. I may come from the fancy company. I may be the one with the clipboard. I may be the one asking the questions, but this is your session. This is you and you own this. So, and because we gloss over that consent, that message uh, may get not just um, passed over very quickly, but buried, right? Just this idea that, that they, they are the ones who should be empowered here. Yeah, and it's a part of it too is just how we explain consent. Um, one researcher who I really respect because I love her approach to the research pro process is Sara Fatala. And she is a researcher who has worked in many different countries. So one of the things that she tries to think about is like, how can I use local metaphors to explain consent? Because a lot of cultures don't have a concept of consent because in the first place, the way that individuals re relate to each other in community, it would be obscene for an individual to take advantage of another person. That's a very Western concept that we have to ask consent for you to share insights into your life. In a lot of other cultures, you're like, but why wouldn't knowledge be shared? Why would that not? So if we take like kind of like an indigenous decolonization perspective on research, like part of that would be, but like individually, how can I claim to own knowledge about my experience, about my community's experience, because we are all interrelated and no one owns anything. So when you go into a different culture, you then have to think about, okay, like what would be the equivalent to consent there that it would make sense. Um, so, you know, we have to think about that. Like we have to think about the cultural definitions of consent and also just like, how can you, you know, as an information architect, how can you visually represent consent on a form in a way that is digestible? I mean, that's something that I think we as researchers really need to work on a little bit more is just like, what is the design of our actual materials that we hand over to participants so that they're able to think through, ah, this is what this person is asking me permission for. It's not this, it's not this, or like, oh, I see that because it's bulleted out, I can actually deny this, but accept this. Right, right. 
Um, I was not going to bring this up, but you asked me about the design of these things. So here I am. Uh, one of my hobbies is I play a lot of games online, uh, role-playing games. And they're, the idea of safety has become uh, mm. paramount in these games because we tell dramatic stories when we're playing these games. Uh, and the uh, it's not just you know, nerdy white boys who are playing this anymore. The the field has become, or the, the community has become much, much, much larger. Uh, and I regularly play with people of color, with people from different countries, with people um, uh, of uh, different gender orientations and things like that. Um, and so we, there's been a real push to develop safety tools, which remind me a lot of what you're talking about of like, here are the things that you can do during a game or during a research session that say you don't want to talk about this or you want to leave or you uh, or we should look at all the topics that we're about to talk about and you should be able to check off which ones you don't want me to talk about right there are there are things that we do in that space that I see a real opportunity to bridge um, into into this space too. I think it's a lot easier than researchers think it is. Yes. Like something that I do yes. is just like if, you know, back in the, the former days um, when I was in person, I would actually give someone the list of questions if I was interviewing them right. ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, but first of all, give it to them ahead of time, but then also give them an actual paper in the session and be like, you tell me where we want to start. Oh, nice. That's it. Like it's, it's such a simple thing, but especially if you're talking about very sensitive topics, like, you know, I've worked with domestic violence survivors, immigrants, some parts of their story will be more triggering than others. Right. So one of the ways that we can take kind of a more trauma informed approach to research is just have people pick, where do you want to start? Where do you want to pause? Where do you want to maybe like, let's kind of like table it for now. But if, if I feel comfortable, I'll bring it up organically. And that's so simple. Like you don't always have to start question one, even though it's more convenient for you as a researcher, it is so much more safer for the participant to have them have, you know, exercise their autonomy and choose where they want to start. Yeah. And why not? Why not? I mean, in some ways that is a data point as well, right? That is interesting to us as researchers to go where, where, where do they feel safest or most confident or, you know, what do they want to unpack? I think that's great. And sometimes you can also have like meta conversations with participants after the session. So I sometimes will ask people like, Oh, you know, I noticed uh, when we started that you started there. Like, why is that? And people will often share that with you and you will expand your understanding of their relationship with that topic. And it also gives you an indication of how should you maybe proceed with future participants? Because if you know certain topics within a community are landmines, or like they're using certain language to use it, you can mimic that language when you're interacting with other participants to make them feel safer and more heard. So good. All right, well, let's put IA under the microscope. Do you mind helping me? Uh, looking at information architecture. You're, you're a UX researcher. I'm an information architect. I've been doing this since dinosaurs roamed the earth. And I have really gotten a lot of value out of watching what you are putting out into the world, right? It's just forcing me, encouraging me, I should say, to revisit some of my preconceptions. So I thought of a, a couple of preconceptions that I have about 
my practice of information architecture. And I wonder if I need to be looking, um, as you said, sort of this assumption about building rapport with your uh, subject, right? That's sort of a an underlying assumption of research. We've got underlying assumptions in IA. And one of those is that I can, I can know a person's mental model, right? I can know how they structure the world um, and, or this particular domain or how they think of something. And once I now understand their mental model, I can then use that in my practice to design a structure that as closely as possible uh, aligns with that mental model. Um, uh, and I, I've come to understand that I tie that mental model to a specific domain, but perhaps it kind of, uh, and by domain, I mean sort of like a specific area or whatever whatever the product, you know, the, the specific area that the product is in. But of course, users come with a, a vast uh, experience, as we were talking about earlier, they come in their own bodies, they come in their own uh, history, personal histories and things like that. Um, is Do you think this very idea of a mental model is problematic? Do you think we need to be sort of looking at this assumption that we can imagine how a user builds structures or a participant person builds structures about their domain. Can we, do, can we, should we throw that out or should we revisit how we think about what people bring to the table when they come and use our products? You know, as someone who wasn't trained in design, mental models was always one of those concepts that I was like, this is interesting. Like, let's unpack <laughs> this that. This is nice. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, in working with designers, I sometimes feel like they treat mental models as very static and ahistorical. Um, by static, I mean that, you know, usually when a, a researcher or excuse me, a participant or a user, I should say, comes into contact with a product, right? Like they start with like almost like a, a novice mindset and then they start to learn how to use that product and then they become more proficient, right? So their mental models change uh, between step one and, and step two, right? But I think we think about change in that way, but then we also don't think about how does the product itself change someone's mental model of like a social dynamic. So I, I recently read this fantastic thread on Twitter by um, a sociologist named uh, Tressie mcmillan Cottom, and she studies uh, the sociology of technology. And she was talking about research that shows how people tend to like information in the context of a relationship. Right. So they tend to trust, for example, uh, something information that came from like a friend or, a, you know, a colleague. Right. But think about the language that we use in social media. Right. Your, your contacts are your friends. So suddenly you're using a platform and this person mental model of how do I look for information that I trust then gets mapped onto the social media platform that is using the lang relational language of friendships and contacts and your network. And so even though 
someone is on this social media platform and this tie with this stranger who's a friend, right? Someone that they just connected <laughs> because, you know, they both liked the same article or they're on the same thread, that really weak tie then becomes a trustworthy tie. And so now you have people who their mental model has of trusting and looking for information that is trustworthy has suddenly been a, adapted by the product so that they not only trust people within their immediate network, they can trust any dude on the internet with like a strange avatar because now there's that relational tie, right? So I think one of the things that I loved about that thread, it just shows how our design choices, the language that we use, the way that we mimic social relations, but in a digital form, actually can change people's own mental models with how they interact, not only with our product, but also people in their lives, because now they might now trust this dude on the internet with a strange avatar more than their family that is trying to counteract all of the misinformation that they are reading right. online. So I think there's, there's the static aspect of mental models that we just assume. I think there's also the issue of, um, I use the word ahistorical, but like there's different ways I think that you can explain this, but it's this idea that certain mental models are antagonistic. We ignore antagonistic mental models in our products. So you're working on IoT, you're working on any type of digital device. Are you designing for someone who is an abuser of their partner or their children? What is that mental model, right? Because usually those types of users they start from a, being a novice user of a product and then they develop a more sophisticated understanding of that product so that they can then abuse other users. So you have to think about, I think as a designer, like where can I create friction within the design for this abuse so that I can counteract this mental model? And then I guess like the third, I don't know if, if you are allowing me to rant a little bit. And I think like the third one, um, this is the one I really actually kind of qualify as like a, a historical framing is that within one group of people, you can have a diversity of mental models. Uh, you know, a lot of people in design, they're very wary about you know, including demographics in mental models because they're like, oh, I don't want to be racist by stereotyping and assuming that like all black users will think this way or all women users will think this way. Um, but I think what ends up happening is that they kind of go on like, the opposite end of the pendulum where they ignore how these users of certain groups have experienced racism just by default of belonging to that group. So uh, there was this really interesting case in Detroit, I don't know, like 2016 or something like that, where this environmental group was trying to plant trees in Detroit's poorest and blackest neighborhoods. Now, of course, this environmental group was predominantly white. 
and it had connections with the city. And what ended up happening is that the residents of those neighborhoods, like, I don't know if it was like a significant portion was just like, I do not want these trees to be planted. And so the, you know, organization was like, but this is a good thing. Like, this actually helps the environment. It makes it safer for these communities. Like, why, why are you denying it? And so this sociologist uh, kind of like went in and she interviewed these residents. And what she found is that they, a lot of these residents had what she called like a heritage narrative where they were interpreting that initiative based off of their perception of the racism of environmental work in the past. So they were like, yeah, in the 1960s, you had the Detroit revolts. And it was because you had the city was trying to implement all of these racist environmental policies. So anytime that they come in contact with a representative or an associate of the city, they're going to frame that initiative with that racist history. So if you're going to be, you know, giving them, you know, like this, this organization, like they had to, they should have framed this initiative as we recognize that in the past, this happened. However, these are the steps that we're currently taking to prevent something similar from happening, right? So I always like to think about how are users or participants framing you as a researcher, framing the project and framing the product and framing your parent organization that is hiring you. What are they saying what was, what is, and what could be? And it's only when we understand that can we kind of see how there's resistances within certain groups towards certain designs. Um, and if you, do, if you ignore that, you're going to probably exclude historically marginalized groups. Although that was fantastic. I'm so uh, grateful for that. That was really, really interesting. Um, and really uh, is helping me rethink and wonder more deeply about whether mental models are a tool that I need to revisit. Um, but before we go, I wanted to ask about uh, Critical UX. Um, this is an event that's coming up in a, in a couple weeks time that you are organizing or you're helping organize, right? Can you tell us a little bit about what this event is all about and what people who attend might get out of it? Yes. So I've always been someone who I, I hope that this came through in the call that is trying to question the assumptions of the UX design research fields. Um, and I think one of the challenges of doing that type of work is that just sometimes you lose a little bit of hope in the field, right? You know, if, if you're yeah. constantly, you know, if you're constantly critiquing something, you're only focusing on the negative, right? You're right. not focusing on where things can go in the future. And so I have been reading a lot of abolitionist work uh, lately. And one of the people that I've just has just resonated so much with me is Mariam Kaba. And the thing that she says is that hope is a discipline. And so this event is really my attempt at using critique as a signal of hope. So how can we critique the field 
so that we can hope for something better. Because I always believe like if you're going to critique something, it's because you think that it can be improved. You should not be wasting your time on critiquing something that can't change. So this event is really trying to look at, okay, how can we critique UX through an anti-racist lens, a disability justice lens, and an abolitionist lens so that we can see what people are trying to do in the field and what we can hopefully achieve more in the future with the field. That sounds awesome. And if folks want to sign up, where do they go? Yeah, so they can go to uh, humanitycenter.com, Critical UX. And so that's uh, H-M-N-T-Y-C-N-T-R-D.com and then backslash Critical UX. Awesome. I will definitely uh, include that link uh, when I when I post this conversation. So, Thank you so much. <laughs> we're, we're decolonizing and devowelizing. Our, our URLs. So I love it. Exactly. <laughs> um, oh, but this was so cool. I had such a good time. I hope you did as well. I learned a lot. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs>